you have your Bibles, please open them to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We have been taking a short break from our study in the book of Romans to take three weeks to go back and to review some of the the foundational truths of, of what it means to be a church. And what we've said is that there are really three ways that we're going to look at this, and we're going to look at it from the vantage point of being stewards or being servants. We are, as we saw last week, servants of the King. We are all servants of King Jesus, the risen Lord. And we are to all be using our gifts in a way that honors him and particularly those who are entrusted with the stewardship of leadership. What does it mean to uh, serve by leading? And then this week I want to change our focus a little bit to something that's actually even more important than that. And that is service itself. Being in the service of the church. We talked about being in the service of the king today, in the service of the church, and next week, and most importantly, uh, in the service of the gospel. But when it comes to being in the, in the service of the church, we can't help but begin our discussion by looking at what churches are. Looking around us and seeing what are the patterns we can witness today about churches in general. And as I was thinking about that this week, I kind of break them down into three categories of churches. I started with a really long list, and then I began to break it down into smaller and smaller and group them together and, and, and try to find the simplest way of, of categorizing the churches that are out there. And, and there are really three. The first kind of church would be a cultural church. A cultural church is a church that you attend because that's where everyone else in your tribe attends. Now, there are cultural churches that are built around ethnicities, nationalities. There are cultural churches that are are built around people that have undergone similar experiences or immigrated from similar countries and other cultures. Uh, There are cultural churches that are made of a people who just act and and think the same way. They're just easy to relate to. They're people just like me. And so these cultural churches tend to be churches that, that gather around similarity. Similarity of language, similarity of, of uh, ethnicity, similarity of even recreational preferences, musical styles. But then there's another type of church, and, and, and that church is really more the consumer church, I'll call it. The consumer church. Now, I don't mean that to be in inherently negative because we're all consumers on one level or another. We all choose to go somewhere or do something because it meets a need. But these sort of needs-based churches uh, can sometimes fall into this trap of providing more and more and more services in order to tend to their customers who become more and more demanding and less and less loyal because the moment you stop providing the very services that they're going there to receive is the last moment they are there at the church. The consumer mentality is basically like, well, you give me what I want, and you will have my loyalty in return. If you have the right kind of youth program that does what I want you to do in order to help raise my children, I will be there. If you offer uh, the excellent music that I'm looking for and the experience that I desire, if, if your preacher uh, preaches the kind of sermons that I like to listen to, then I'll be there. If your campus is beautiful, if you've got ample parking, If you provide a little shuttle that takes me from the far parking lot and in earlier because of the weather, I I like that even more. Cater to my needs, uh, do whatever it takes to make me comfortable here and then I will stay. And then there's a third kind of church. And that type of church is the covenantal church. A covenantal church. It's not cultural because by nature of a covenant, you're bringing people together from all walks of life, all ethnicities. 
It's not a consumer church because you're making a choice to be there. You're making a, a choice to covenant together, to be in this assembly as one. It means that quite often there will be things that you flat out don't like in the church, but you're able and willing to look past what you don't like because of the commitment that you've made. It's a mutual commitment. It's a lot like a marriage where you enter into a covenant with that person saying that I will live up to and uphold my covenant commitment to you even if you don't uphold your commitment to me. It's not a bilateral kind of contract. It's a unilateral thing where you go in saying, I make this covenant with you because ultimately my covenant is not with you. My covenant is with God. Whenever I do a marriage ceremony, I always remind the bride and the groom that they are not really making a covenant to each other in the eyes of, of witnesses. They are making a covenant to God in the eyes of each other. They need to understand that their covenant to God is what is going to unify them and take them through the difficult patches and seasons that will come. Likewise, I would say to you that a, that a church that is covenantal is a church that gets through the rough patches as well because of the, the mutual commitments that have been made. That's why we have a church covenant here. We're going to talk about this next week in our members meeting. This is what it means to, to, to agree to, to covenant with a group of people and to be part of that local church. And so if we're going to understand what it means to be covenanted together, what it means to, to serve within that body, then we really have to define what service really means to the assembly. And so this morning I'm going to go through Hebrews chapter 10, especially verses 24 and 25, and we're going to look at that very subject. So look down if you would, Hebrews chapter 10. And for the sake of context, I'm going to back up here to verse 19, and we'll take it all the way through verse 25. This is God's word. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, that our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. True service in the church. What is it? Why do I need it? Where do I find it? Three questions for you this morning regarding true service in the church. What is it? Why do I need it, and where do I find it? The answers are going to be here in this text. First of all, we see the true service in the church. Let's answer the question, what is it? Well, true service really is about using your spiritual gifts. It's about using your spiritual gifts to admonish and to encourage the assembly to remain accountable to Christ. The best definition of, of service that I can think of is that you as a believer are going to use your spiritual gifts within this body for the purpose of admonishing 
and encouraging the assembly to remain accountable to Christ. Now that's very different than what you see in some other churches. Because I think that some other churches view service really as a way for you to serve the organization. To to serve um, the entire church as something that is happening, not people that are gathering. In fact, sometimes I think we confuse it, and so I want to tell you what it is also not. Sometimes it's good to give the negative. Real service, then, is not offering your manual labor to create and manage the crowd so that you can improve the production. A genuine Christian service is, is not just using your manual labor to create, to manage, uh, to provide for the crowd that gathers kind of loosely so that you can improve the quality of the production. And the answer for this really comes down in that little word in verse 25, to meet together. To meet together, or to assemble. It's, it's a Greek word from where we get the word synagogue. And to come together as a, as a group of people for a purpose, for a reason. You are to synagogue together. To be united together. That, that's the reason for the gathering. The gathering, the meeting, the assembling then here, it is a gathering of believers and it is only used one other place in the New Testament. That's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and it is used to describe what's going to happen when Jesus Christ himself gathers together the believers at his second coming. That's how important it is. This is not just some loose affiliation. It's not just a, a group that gets together. No, this is a very special group of people as believers assembling, meeting together. As if preparing for that day for when the Lord returns to separate the sheep from the goats, to to, to come back for the ones that identify as his. And so this assembly is not something that we just take casually or lightly. It's not just a meeting, it's an intimate fellowship. It's a binding of people. It's an intertwining of people. I was thinking about this this morning when I was making coffee. uh, Because... I thought, I thought about you when I was grinding the coffee beans. Let me explain why. You know, the, 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 it's like you take these beans and you, and you put them in the, in the grinder and you turn it on and that, and that grinder, that, that machine, that mechanism breaks them down into smaller pieces and then, and then puts them together so that you can actually release all the goodness that's inside of them. If I were to take just those whole beans and throw it in the top of the Chemex and pour hot water over it, I mean, what kind of coffee would I have? It would be horrible. I I mean, I could get that, you know, at McDonald's. But if I'm going to make a cup of coffee, it takes tender care in order to nurture it into everything that God intended it to be. You've got to get the right beans roasted properly. You've got to grind them. Not only grind them, but grind them properly so that they all come together in this one glorious sort of ground up powder and then you carefully pour the water through it and then you watch it just drip down in to the bottom of the container and some of you right now are thinking, wow, I only had one this morning, I could use another one right now. (laughs) The aroma comes out, the smell and the flavor and it all blossoms. Why? Because there's that interconnectedness of every one of those individual beings. That's the church. That's what we're meant to be. We're We're not just separated individual shells on the shore, never really connecting, but just sharing the same beach. No, we, we, are, we are part of one another. And so when you think about what the fellowship is and the meeting together of it, it's an intimate gathering. We know each other. We're open to each other. 
We are part of one another. Now this is something that I'm gonna say that might shock you. Let me ask the question, where does that happen? Where does it really happen? Does it happen in church on Sunday morning? I'm gonna argue that the answer is no. At least not only here, not entirely here, and certainly not primarily here. Because right now, when you think about this text of scripture that we just read, you're not really admonishing one another at the moment. You're not really encouraging one another. You're not really doing the work of the ministry. You're not really using your, your gifts. I mean, I mean, some of you are in some ways, but for the most part, you know, we're here together. We gather for a purpose of worship. Our, our, our focus is really more vertical. It's not really the same kind of gathering where we're able to use those gifts to build one another up and know one another and challenge one another. So it's not just the assembling of people together on the Lord's Day. Now you might say, well, what about those passages that talk about singing and encouraging one another? Well, that's great. Go over to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll look at Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3. These are both texts of Scripture that you might use to argue against what I just said. Not that any of you would want to argue with me. But were it to happen, I would take you here. And look what it says. Chapter 5, Ephesians. Verse 18 says, don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, the context here is that you've gathered together for a purpose. I believe it was for the common meal And he says, don't get drunk with wine. Don't be like the Corinthian church where people gathered early and they ate the food and drank the wine and there was nothing left when the rest of the people came. He says, don't make that your focus, but rather when you do gather in these smaller groups in homes, encourage one another with your songs and then submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. How are you submitting to one another right now? You're you're, you're really not. You're really not. I mean, you're gathered together, but you're not really submitting to one another. The submitting to one another happens in a context where you're able to be close enough and known enough and in each other's lives enough that you need to give somebody an instruction and they have to be willing to submit to it. Where you have to give somebody a correction and they have to be willing to submit to it. Where, where somebody says something in a, in a dynamic like that and, and you raise an objection and you give an instruction and you bring the truth and they say, I see that, I yield to it, I submit to it. Now that happens in a context other than the main gathering of the body. Let's look over at Colossians because the same thing happens there. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Flip over a couple of books. Let the word of God, the word of Christ dwelling you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Where is that happening? Where is that happening? It has to be some place where the word of God is dwelling in you richly because you are teaching each other and you are admonishing one another and you're doing it with all wisdom. We're not at this moment teaching one another and admonishing one another or doing that with all wisdom. It's going to happen in a different kind of context where you're open for that. Along with the songs that you sing to one another. Along with the submitting to each other and to God's word. 
So I believe that what you have here is the meeting together, not just of the assembled church on the Lord's day for the purpose of hearing instruction in God's word and singing praises to him in corporate worship, but additionally, a gathering that would have been a smaller group gathering, a gathering where people were able to use their gifts for the admonishing and the encouraging of the body of Christ to keep them accountable to obey him. So what is it? It's a gathering of believers in a context where they are open and able to teach one another, submit to one another, and encourage one another. That's what it is. Number two, why do we need it? Why do we need it? Look back at verse 24 and 25. Let's read it again here for some context. We're back in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. And let us consider then how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why do we need to do it? We need to do it because, first of all, believers were created for that kind of fellowship. They were created for that kind of fellowship, and it it allows them to do two things. There's two main verbs in this section, so look down. The first one is to consider. The word is consider. And the second one is to encourage. So we're going to unpack this a little bit for you because it's very important that we understand it. Why do we gather together? Why do we need it? We need it because we need to consider something and we need to encourage someone. Now, what are we considering? He says you consider this, you consider this, and it's very interesting. You consider how to, it's a noun, stir up. You sit back and you consider as a group how to stir up. Now, that word stir up, it only appears here and in Acts chapter 15, verse 39, where it is translated sharp division. That's the word that was used to describe the fight that happened among the very apostles and leaders of the church. The great dispute they got into in terms of the missionary journeys. Who are they going to bring and who are they going to leave behind? This is the other place it is described. It's it's a word that meant to prod, to poke, even to spur like you would spur a horse. It means to inflict pain. Now just consider this for a moment. You are being instructed to gather together for the purpose of considering how to inflict pain. You say, yeah, that's how church feels like to me too sometimes. You guys have got that one down. No, listen, it's true. You gotta be able to consider this and it means to give give careful reasoned thinking to. The reason we come together is for the purpose of spurring one another on, stirring one another up, but to what? To what? To love and to good deeds. Love and good deeds. You actually have to put somebody in a position where you even have to almost hurt them in order to cause them and provoke them to show the kind of love that Christ wants us to show. Why? Because it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to show the love of Christ. It is hard for us in our natural state, in our flesh, to do what he's called us to do. And so we need the body. The body needs to come alongside of us and at times tell us what we need to hear, not what we want to hear, and provoke us, spur us on to do the right thing and to show the kind of love that God has called us to do, uh, called us to, to show in Christ. But secondly, you're also supposed to do these good deeds. Very important term, good deeds. The word good there is not the word that means intrinsic good like holiness, but it's the kind of good you can actually see. It's the good deeds that were discussed that was read for you earlier in Matthew chapter 5, the good deeds that the world sees and glorifies God because of it. 
So you're supposed to be in an assembly of believers where somebody thinks through how they can best provoke you not only to love, but also to do the good kind of deeds that make the world look at you and ask about the hope that you have. They say, I want to be with that group. I want to be with those people. I want to be with an assembly of people who love one another the way you love one another, who do the kind of good deeds you do for one another. In fact, even though I'm not one of you yet, I can say whatever you're doing, it's obviously being provoked by a power greater than yourselves because there's nothing in you naturally that would cause you to do that. This whole God thing must be real. Now, it's one thing to understand what that means. It's something else to live it. How are we doing living it? Once again, I go back to the very question, are we able to do that here in this assembly? We can to some degree. But the most effective way that you're going to be able to do this is in a smaller group setting where you're intimately known and you're open to one another. Now, this is important because um, several of you have talked to me about the fact that you really enjoy attending this church, but you come from quite a distance. You travel to get here. And if we've ever had that conversation, I've probably given you the same advice, which is that Traveling together for the, the purpose of gathering to worship is not that uncommon. In fact, in most places around the world, people will travel for a long time to get to church on a Lord's Day morning. Uh, many times it's on foot. Many times they're traveling on foot longer than you're driving by car. And they are doing that because there's almost a pilgrimage of sorts from where they are to where they gather for the purpose of being obedient to assemble and to worship and to hear God's word taught. But where does the real ministry happen? The real ministry, the real one anothering, which by the way, you're supposed to consider how to spur one another on, one another, and you're to encourage, we'll see in a moment, one another. The one another's happen within the context of a small enough group where you can intimately know and be known. And that's going to happen in your neighborhood. That's going to happen around the people that live close to you. It's okay for you to drive a distance to be part of a local church on a Sunday morning as long as you are part of that smaller group throughout the week where you're able to use your gifts and you can minister to one another. Now I'm going to say something else that's going to get some of you maybe offended. If you had to choose between the two, I would encourage you to be in the small group even if it means missing church occasionally. Now some of you are thinking, I've never heard you say that before. Some of you are thinking, wait a minute, I'm the guy who's not that consistent in going to church and I'm the guy who always gets the text or the email from you telling me that you expect me to be there on Sunday. I'm the person that that you end up bumping into providentially in Home Depot and it's always the same thing where I look at you and I say, okay, I know I haven't been to church in a long time, I'll be there on Sunday. You're the pastor that, that, that keeps following up on your membership list to make sure that the people who say they're a member of the church actually, astonishingly, attend the church. So what's going on? What's made you change? I haven't changed. I haven't changed. I don't change. But I've learned something. And that is, the deepest and most impactful ministry that I've witnessed go on in this local assembly hasn't happened here on a Sunday morning, but it's happened in these other groups during the week. And as we relaunch our community groups or small groups, whatever you want to call them, you're going to see a distinct emphasis on that. That these are places where people can gather together to know and be known, to be shepherded and to use their gifts, to exercise the one another's, to make that the precious intimate fellowship that really gives you that spiritual encouragement that you need and the spiritual challenge and admonishment that you need to love and show the good deeds to one another. So is gathering together on the Lord's Day vitally important? Is it 
out of obedience to Christ? Absolutely. But in terms of what's going to have the deepest impact on your spiritual life and your growth, I would implore you not to forsake the assembling together outside the large group meeting. It can be in small groups. It can be with other couples. It can be with individuals that you trust. It can be with other women with women, men with men. It can be couples. It can be whatever it wants. But it's got to be with other believers who you can be open with and who will be open with you. That's what it means to gather together. So why do we need it? Because we're designed for that. We are designed for that. Now, not only do we consider how to provoke one another to love and do good deeds, but we also encourage one another. What does that second word mean? We said the first one was to, to consider, to consider how to provoke to love and good deeds, and the second one is to encourage. Why do we need to encourage one another to remain committed to gathering together? And the answer, again, is that it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to prioritize. It's hard to be in a group of people that take God's word seriously enough that they'll hold you accountable to obey it. It's hard to be with a group of people who take God's word seriously enough to challenge you when you sin, to call you out, to rebuke you, to confront you, to correct your error, and to expect you to receive that with humility and grace. I don't know what's more interesting to me as I read through the book of Proverbs, the number of times we are told to give correction or the number of times we are told how to receive it. Oh, it's very easy for me to read the book of Proverbs and identify all the places where we're reminded to give people instruction and correction and to do it graciously and to do it consistently and to completely overlook the fact that we are also told over and over again how to receive correction. Now, maybe you're like me and you're just filled with pride and you skip over that because you think, well, I don't really need to learn that because who's going to correct me? Like, I never ever need correction. And I'm so humbled by it. In fact, I was just reading earlier this week, I think it was Proverbs 19, and, and I made a list of the things I was praying through that day. And at the end of it, the last thing I learned in that chapter that morning was prepare to receive correction. Prepare every day to receive correction. Pray that God would open up your heart and make you humble and willing to receive correction. Listen, to be above reproach is not to be above rebuke. In fact, if you're above rebuke, you cannot be above reproach. So this applies to everybody. When you look at men that might serve as elders, they're to be above reproach. Well, they sure better not be above rebuke because if you can't challenge them and correct them, then they could never serve you with humility. So this encouragement that we're supposed to show to one another, the real service within the body is the encouraging to stick with it, to persevere, to press on, to work through the difficult seasons that happen because we're in a situation where we're open with one another. In fact, it's so difficult that for some, notice, it's been a habit to avoid it. It's been a habit to avoid it. The word habit there is where we get the word custom from. It's the word ethos in the original the very ethos, we use that term, the very ethos of their life, the very culture of their life, the very pattern of their life is to avoid those kind of gatherings. Given the option, in fact, they would much rather come here into a larger setting where they can come in right at the last minute or past the last minute and they can sit down and they can hear people singing and they can sing themselves maybe if they want and then they can hear somebody give a sermon from the Bible and then they can slip right out afterwards and they can check off that they've done church that week. Never again to rub shoulders with the people who are in this room. Never again to open themselves up to any kind of conviction that could come from being known or knowing somebody. 
brothers and sisters, let me encourage you that if that's your mentality, if you're here as a spectator, if you just come in and you sit and then you leave and you never really rub off on somebody enough, if you never really get ground down enough to become part of the very composite of this body, then you're in disobedience. You might be in sin. <laughs> you might say, well, wait a minute, I'm not like those people who don't go to church. I'm not like those people who isolate themselves and, 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 and stay away and just think I can watch it on the internet and that counts. Well, I would agree with you. Uh, that's not, that isn't church. There's no such thing as virtual church. You, you're, you're, God never designed you to, to be out of fellowship like that. He didn't design you to watch something on your computer and consider it to be sufficient to obey this command. But he also didn't design you to simply come to the place where the believers are gathered and then live a life completely detached from them. We're called a vine. Remember that when Jesus describes us? We're a vine. All the branches are connected to the vine. We're like a puzzle where all the pieces actually fit together. We are not individual potted plants that are put together on the porch. We're not able to just exist independently and separately. So even when you come here, don't isolate yourself. Don't isolate yourself. Get to know the people around you and then deliberately and intentionally work your way into fellowship time throughout the week where you can know and be known. Now, not only are we designed for it, but secondly, it's God's will. Why do we need it? We're designed for it, but also it is God's will. Do you realize that Christ purchased this access for you? That Christ laid down his life so that he could purchase the access that we enjoy as we go before the throne of grace, the priesthood of the believers. Now, he purchased that so that you could pray without the assistance of anybody going between you and God. But he also purchased something else for you. He purchased a community. He purchased an assembly. He purchased a family so that you would be together with other people who share that same privilege. He purchased the privilege to come to him on your own and then he purchased the privilege so that you would never have to. So that you can intercede for one another, know one another be intimately intertwined with one another. It is a gift from him. He purchased it for you. Now, if you were to purchase admission to a basketball game, and you were to purchase admission for another person, and, and, and not only did you purchase the admission for them, but you, you bought the, the premium seats, the best seats, the seats right courtside, it's going to be you and, and, and all the Hollywood celebrities just sitting there courtside watching, watching the basketball game. And, and they not only paid for your parking, but they actually hired a helicopter to come and get you at your home and bring you right over to the stadium. And, and, and all of your meals were delivered to you courtside. And it was the finest food you've ever had. Now, if all of this was purchased for you and all of this was set aside for you and it was given to you free of charge as an offer and you rejected it, not only would you show great dishonor to the gift, but would you, you would show massive dishonor to the giver. You, you would show a great dishonor to the person who had given such expense in order to provide it for you. Now, what does it say about the way that we treat the assembling together? when it was Christ himself who purchased it with his own blood. How do you treat the assembling together of those who have been given access to the very throne room of God? How do you treat it? What do you think about it? 
How do you value it? It's my challenge to you this morning. It's a precious thing. Treat it as such. To understand that more clearly, look back in the context. Beginning back in verse 19, look at what he says. Remember this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Why do we do it? Because he shed his blood. No more animal sacrifices. The place talked about here is the place that the high priest would go once a year on Yom Kippur where he could then spread out the, sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat for the sins of the nation. And the writer of the Hebrews says that because of the blood of Jesus Christ, he has opened up that pathway for you every single day to be continually cleansed. It is the new and the living way that he opened up for us through that curtain that he tore, through his flesh, through his death on the cross. And since we have this great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see the imagery there. It's not just the mercy seat sprinkled with blood, but it's us sprinkled with blood. We are sanctified. We're set apart. And it's not just the blood of an animal. It's the blood of Christ himself. That's how precious this is. You see, this is the gospel reality worked into your small group. Why are you able to go into a place where people are open and transparent with one another, confessing their sins one to another, holding each other accountable, challenging one another, admonishing one another, rebuking one another, being corrected, submitting to one another? How can you possibly do that without your uh, image being destroyed? You can do that because you understand that all your sins are forgiven. Because you stand righteous in the eyes of a holy God. And that the people around you who are encouraging you to excel still more in the laborious fight of faith in the flesh until you're finally released from that at the resurrection, those are the people that are working with you and beside you and encouraging you along the way. Because there's no, now, no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so you can open up your heart and your mind. You can receive correction. Because there's no threat to your assurance. The whole section here in Hebrews, in most Bibles, has a heading that says the believer's assurance. Listen, the believer's assurance is most demonstrated when the believer allows himself or herself to be open to other believers, to receive their correction, to humbly be admonished, and to allow themselves to submit one to another. That's what security means. You're secure enough in your salvation to gather together in the way that you're supposed to here. Well, verse 23 says, let us therefore hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. He is faithful to forgive, faithful to uphold, faithful to sustain. So, what is it? It is the gathering together of believers for the purpose of using their gifts to admonish and to encourage and to hold accountable to obedience in Christ. Why do I need it? I need it because, number one, I was created by God in order to receive it. I was, I was created by him to be in a covenant community where people were thinking about ways to stir up and to spur and to provoke within me the love that I wouldn't normally show and the good deeds I wouldn't normally do and then encourage me to stick with it even though it's painful and at times embarrassing as my continual temptation to sin is revealed. But then the third question, where do I find it? Where do I find it? If it's not only in church, then where do I find it? 
I mentioned this earlier, but I'd like to repeat it again. You find it within these covenant assemblies that are committed to admonishing and affirming one another to remain accountable to Christ. That's where you find it. The, the, the application, if you will, today is, is that we take this very clear teaching from Hebrews and we do apply it within the local assembly and the church on the Lord's Day when we gather for the purpose of worship and song and hearing his word taught, but we don't stop there. Where do you really find it? You find it within the smaller group communities where you can know and be known. You really can't experience all the joy and the benefits that come from your assurance and the confidence you have that you'll never be condemned until you can share it with somebody else who's experiencing the same thing. You've been granted access into the very throne room of God. You have been granted access into a place where you don't belong because of the righteousness of Christ. And therefore, you receive one another into smaller groups even though they don't belong because they too have been covered by the righteousness of Christ. That is how you're bound together. That is how you grow. And that is how you experience a unity, the likes of which will never be known in an assembly, even of our size. We're not a big church. But we're also not a church where everybody can know everyone else quite the way that you can in a group much smaller. So, our definition of service, service then, real service, not, not just going and doing something in order to keep the production humming, but real service, real spirit-led, gifted, God-empowered service is using your spiritual gifts to admonish and to encourage the assembly to remain accountable to Christ. That's what it is. That's why you need it. And that's where you find it. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity once again to be reminded of these truths. We know that in many contexts, it's quite normal for somebody to come to church on a Sunday, to sit there and, and to participate in the music and to hear the preaching and to go away and back into whatever place that they came from, not really having any desire to once again encounter the saints until the next Sunday. Father, I know that for some, perhaps they've never even given thought to that. For some, it's really an accomplishment simply to be here on a Sunday morning, much less committed to anything beyond this. But I pray that we would not allow ourselves to believe that this gathering alone is sufficient to provide the environment where people can teach one another and admonish one another and encourage one another and serve one another and submit to one another. We understand that the one another's cannot happen here the way that they will in a smaller context, in a context set aside deliberately for that reason, to eat and drink, to celebrate together what you have done for us in Christ to sing those hymns and songs and spiritual songs for the mutual building up, to be shepherded and led by men and women who love us, who will challenge us, who will correct us, and who will encourage us and affirm us. 
I pray, Father, for our body here at Tri-City that today would be a day of transformation in our hearts. We'd go away having never truly considered these things. But as your word told us today, to consider them, to think about them, to think deeply about them, and how it is that we could create the sort of crisis that would cause somebody to come face to face with the reality that they don't love the way they're supposed to and they don't act in a way that others would look at and as a result bring glory to you. And may today be a day where we humble ourselves before you and sincerely ask you how we can accomplish this for your glory and for our good. In your name we pray. Amen.